Good evening. It's wonderful to be with you all today. My name is Gloria Whiteham, and I am the, the Swartz Resident Practitioner in Ministry Studies here at the Div School, and I am a very proud 1997 alum of the Div School. Yesterday marked the 132nd birthday of Eleanor Roosevelt, and so it's fitting that we open with a quote from uh, Eleanor. And she said that women, whether subtly or vociferously, have always been a tremendous power in the destiny of the world. I can think of no one who more aptly fits that pronouncement than our speaker tonight, HDS 2000 alum Karen Che. Through her work as, an, as a human rights lawyer, as a Unitarian Universalist minister, and a pub, former public defender, Karen's ministry, if, if you will, has achieved global impact. She is the founder of the International Bridges to Justice, which promotes systemic global change in the administration of criminal justice. IBJ aims to end torture as an investigative tool by providing early access to counsel. That work is now situated in some 40 countries, and once again, Karen has had global impact. In an article that was done on her three years ago by our own Paul Massari, um, Ella, uh, Karen made this quote. Do, she said, um, ah, at HDS I learned to take the faith that I had in myself to connect it to a problem that we have in society and transform it into structures that lead to a better world. I learned that human beings working together with God and for God can co-create history, and because of that, great things are possible. And so I'm delighted tonight to introduce you to our speaker. The Harvard Kennedy School is called her inspirational. The American Bar Association of Human Rights has said that she is outstanding, and the US News and World Report has proclaimed her as one of America's best leaders. But tonight, I prefer to go with the, the uh, assessment of one of the uh, 21st century's greatest thinker. Uh, musician Alicia Keys has described what I think is exactly what Karen is. This girl is on fire. She's walking on fire. This girl is on fire. Please receive a girl on fire, Karen Shea. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And I love the fire because you might have noticed that I very subtly lit the candle because my element is I'm wood, but fire always gives me light and energy. So it's, it's beautiful to be introduced this way. And I wanted to first say thank you all for being here today. Um, there's a, I'm coming from Switzerland, and as many of you know, Albert Schweitzer once said, Can, do you need this right here? Okay. How about that? Can you hear me? Not quite. How about that? Is that good? Okay, thank you. Um, so I'm coming from Switzerland, and Albert Schweitzer, who lived in Switzerland, once said, at times our own light goes out, and each of us has reason to be grateful for those who have rekindled the light within. And it is really on behalf of not only myself, but defenders throughout the world, 
that I want to thank you for being here tonight because the work that many of them do is not always easy. Um, it's very difficult work and many of them, um, despite very difficult situation, have the prophetic imagination to really go into the darkest corners, really into prison cells and everywhere else and see and co-create a different world because they believe that it is possible. And this area um, of torture as an investigative tool and looking at giving access to counsel to many is not, well, I shouldn't say it's not a popular area because it's transforming, but traditionally, it has not been an area that people really want to look at. It's not you know, taking care of good people. It's not even taking care of all the nice victims. It is really, for many people, shadow work. And we prefer to sort of think about good people that we help and bad people who might be in prison, but something that we don't need to think about. And Thich Nhat Hanh says, was once asked, you know, someone asked him, they said, what do we need to do to save the world? And he stopped and he thought about it. And, um, and then he said, you know, he didn't come up with a 12-point strategic plan. <laughs> Instead, he stopped and he thought about it and he said, you know, in order to save the world, what we need to really do is each of us needs to allow ourselves to hear the cries of the world because he really believed that. If we allowed that space into our own hearts where we could allow ourselves to feel the cries, that we could then also have the courage to see what we could do and what we could do together. So thank you all so much for being here. It's a particular honor for me to be here at Harvard Divinity School because it's not a lie. It really all began right here. Um, many of you know that I was a lawyer. Um, in 1986, I was accepted to Harvard Divinity School and I was also accepted to law school. And I couldn't decide, it's you know, law school, divinity school. Many people think they're very different and they are very different. I was very, um, I was very concerned about much of the pain and the suffering in the world, and I wanted to see what I could do and what my part in it would be. And so I thought about it for a long time, and I couldn't figure it out. So what do you do when you don't, can't figure something out? You delayed the decision. So I, I didn't go to divinity school. I didn't go to law school, but I went to work in some refugee camps for a year. And when I came back in 1987, I was looking at, you know, what is it? believe that ultimately it's also about spiritual, a spiritual commitment, spiritual shifts. That's how we begin to change things and transform things. But I also realized that it was about structural change and there was just living, breathing people who were suffering in the world. So when I came back from the refugee camps, I decided that I would look at what my contribution could be in terms of structural change. And I enrolled in law school, went to UCLA for law school. I became a public defender, and in 1994, I moved to Cambodia and lived there for three years. Now, the interesting thing that happened is that, and I'll come back to Cambodia later, because it's also the genesis of International Bridges of Justice, is that, um, I, so I think I deferred admission to Harvard Divinity School longer than anybody did. <laughs> I first was accepted to Harvard Divinity School in 1986, and I entered as a student in 1997. Um, hopefully more mature and wiser, but maybe not. But I entered as a student. And the interesting thing that happened for me is that I thought that 
when I came to divinity school, I would finally be able to do what I wanted to do. So I thought, oh, you know, law school was so structured and this and this and that, and now I'm going to, you know, just breathe in and I'm going to be intuitive. And I didn't realize that that actually wasn't what Harvard Divinity School was like. <laughs> it was actually much more intellectual than my law school experience. But, but when I was here, I began to understand that um, when I was working in Cambodia, I, I often encountered situations um, where I thought that I could do something and I would do the thing that I could do. But it was quite, you know, kind of overwhelming. And at a certain point, I thought to myself, okay, I can do this, but I'm going to take a break from it now. And when I was in divinity school, it became very clear to me that actually we really co-create history, that it's not something that just comes down upon us, but that if we decide that we want to have transformation in the world, that we commit to it and we transform with it. And so for me, in my third year of divinity school, after a long time, um, I founded International Bridges of Justice. And actually, International Bridges of Justice was my senior thesis. And I just saw David Little, Professor David Little, who was my, one of my thesis advisors together with uh, Professor Dudley Rose. And, and we always laugh about it because he, he keeps saying to me, I didn't know that those three words would have such a profound effect on you, Karen. But he wrote three words on the top of my senior thesis. And it was, it can. Ah, it's four words. He was slightly dyslexic. <laughs> he wrote, it can be done. And, and that was huge for me because, because he said, it can be done. And, and here, was, here was my vision, and here was my hope. When I was in Cambodia, I, I always talk about it in terms of one person. Of course, you know that there are many, but for communication purposes, we always focus on one person. So I was talking about walking into a prison in Cambodia one day and meeting a 12-year-old boy. And this boy is tortured and has been denied access to counsel. And what I realized at that point is that for all the letters that myself and my colleagues had written for um, important political prisoners, that we would never have written a letter for this 12-year-old boy because he was not an important person who did anything important for anybody. In fact, he was just a 12-year-old brat, probably, who stole a bicycle. Now, the irony of the situation is that the Cambodian government was kind of like, you know, don't touch my 5% of political prisoners. This is true in many, many countries. But if you want to help this 12-year-old boy, who cares? Go ahead. And so what I recognize is that there was a huge gap within the system that much of our global efforts are concentrated on the 5% of important political prisoners. And the 95% of people who are tortured are just well, they're voiceless and they're tortured and they're, many of them just stuck in prison. Today we have over three million people in pretrial detention with, with not, you know, no lawyers or anything assigned to them. So when I looked at that, um, I was aware of the fact that this was a situation in Cambodia and worked in Cambodia for a number of years and then thought, I really thought this, okay, I've done my share. I'm gonna go to divinity school and have a great time. So I went to divinity school. It didn't turn out to be that way. <laughs> Divinity School just asked more questions and more questions and more questions. And then 
what kept bothering me, and I remember having conversations with Dudley Rose, and he thought, I'm sure he thought, oh my God, this girl is like, make up your mind. What are you, what are you agonizing over? But I couldn't, I was like, but I want to become a Unitarian Universalist minister, maybe, but there's all these countries and there's these huge problems everywhere. So my second year, I did a field ed, and I went to Vietnam, and it was actually supported by Harvard Divinity School. And I did the same thing. I did a legal needs assessment and saw that um, it was very much similar, that there were people in prison, they were tortured, they were denied access to counsel. There was a window of opportunity because I met with a number of the government officials and the bar associations, but it was an unmet need. Then I started looking at it and realized, really, this was my hypothesis at the time, but that there were 113 countries in the world that tortured but 93 of these countries had all passed laws on the books that say you have a right to a lawyer, you have a right not to be tortured. The problem, though, is that these laws were not implemented. And they say, there's a quote from a long time ago, I think it was 18-something, and some, somebody said, justice is open to everyone, just like the Brits Carlton. And I realize it's true today as well, that in the 93 countries where there are laws, if, you know, if one of us gets picked up, we might be okay because we can call a lawyer and the laws will, in effect, to some extent, protect us. But for the poorest of the poor, the majority of people in the world, if they are picked up by the police, the police will start breaking their fingers immediately because torture is the cheapest form of investigation. And it's something that continues every single day. So when I was in my last year of Harvard Divinity School, I took the leap because Professor Little wrote on my thesis, it can be done. I took the leap and decided, and I remember, see, it's now 2016, and I wrote the thesis in the year 2000, and I remember not really being sure, because, you know, to start an organization and do all that stuff, I, I don't, do not consider myself an organization person. <laughs> Jory's laughing, it's true. <laughs> do not consider myself an organization person, and, you know, all that stuff that organizations do, that's not my thing. Um, so first I tried to get every other group that I knew to do it, to take on this mission. And then when that didn't work, I sat down, and I remember I was sitting at St. John's, and I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna do it for one year. <laughs> I'm gonna do it for one year, I'm gonna set this up, and after it's set up, I'm gonna give it to somebody else to do. So that I can do. So I will say that I did that for one year, and then 12 years later, I negotiated another 12-year contract with myself, and it's kept going. But the beautiful thing is this, that um, we started the organization with the understanding and the belief that it was possible to end torture as an investigative tool, but there was something different about it. I went to law school, and I remember when I was in law school, Reading, do you, have you read Jonathan Livingston Siegel? You read this book? Yes, okay. You should read it, I love this book. Anyway, there's one line in this book, because Jonathan Livingston Siegel is tired of just like coming down and eating a little bit of food, and he like flies and soars, and he gets in huge trouble. He gets in huge trouble for wanting to go beyond and seeing something different. And at a certain point, the great gull says to him, you know, begin to press power into your wings. See who you are. Find out who you are becoming. And 
I read that when I was in law school, and I thought, okay, this is great, I could embrace this, and I went on and I did these things in law. But it was really when I came to divinity school that a different part of me began to understand that it wasn't just logically what I could see as being possible. It was also, as, as Baklav Havel has said, that consciousness precedes matter and not the other way around. That if we can conceive and believe and place a commitment into it, we can transform. And I wanted to share a little bit today about the work of the defenders throughout the world because they have conceived and transformed. Back in Cambodia, um, you know, when I first moved into Cambodia in 1994, because of the Khmer Rouge, um, they had killed, even 20 years later, because they had killed all the lawyers, there were less than 10 attorneys that had survived. And so consequently, you would walk into prisons and you'd see, you know, little kids in prison everywhere. Um, you'd meet, I met a woman and she said, oh, I've been here for 10 years because my husband committed a crime. But, you know, they can't find him. It's very, very typical of where there's no rule of law and where there's a breakdown in rule of law. And I want to say, and this sounds very, I, mean, I know I'm just skipping through history, <laughs> but today, after incredible work by the defenders, there are defender resource centers in nine provinces. And in those nine provinces, what we've done is we've put together, you know, advisement rights campaigns so that everyone knows what the laws are. Um, we've done roundtable discussions with judges, prosecutors, police. We've trained defenders, and we have um, set up defender offices where people can receive a lawyer early on. And in those provinces, torture has been reduced from almost every single person to less than 5%, which is hugely amazing. And I will say at the same time that, that it's not just that there's a lawyer there, but there's a complete shift in consciousness. I remember not long ago, I went to one of the provinces, we sat down with one of the lawyers, and the judges and the prosecutors were laughing, and they said, you know what, You're, this lawyer that works for International Bridges of Justice is really lazy, you know, sometimes he doesn't even show up. And, and the lawyer looked at him like, don't say that, she's my boss. <laughs> you know, don't say that. And then the guy said, you know, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. He goes, I, but I wanted to tell you that so that you would know that we still don't, even if he doesn't show up, we don't torture people anymore. We don't torture people anymore because we know he's coming. And, and that is really what we're looking at. We're looking at systematic early access to counsel. So, so, you know, on the one hand, we see great progress. I'll get to the sad stuff later. I know right now you're happy. This is a very light conversation. I'll get to the sad stuff later. But I will say that while this is true, was true in Cambodia, we work in countries throughout the world. And just a few months ago, I was in the DRC in Congo. And, and even though it's a completely different place, I walk into a prison and I meet a woman and she says, hey, uh, no, she didn't say it actually, the prison director said to me, oh, she's here because her husband committed a crime. And then I don't meet a 12-year-old boy who's there for stealing a bicycle. I meet two girls who are there for stealing mobile phones. And I meet, I meet you know, we end up actually defending a boy who is, um, who went into prison when he was 14 because, see, I have a son, and my son loves tennis shoes. Do any of you have sons who love tennis shoes? Okay, you probably love them yourself. And anyway, I have a son who loves tennis shoes, and he was really happy because we went to a used 
shoe store and he bought this great pair of tennis shoes for really, really cheap. And he was like, oh, you know, this famous person also has the same tennis shoes and whatnot. So my son has these great shoes. He's going to school every day. He's showing them off. And in some country far, far away, there is another boy who had the same idea. He bought a pair of tennis shoes for a dollar in the Congo. Turns out that these were stolen tennis shoes. And so this boy has been in prison for the last three years without a lawyer. So here is the somewhat sad thing, but here's the good news. Things have changed and not changed, but they can change. They can change because today we were able to start a program in the Congo and they have lawyers and it's moving step by step. But it's, it's really, it's really a, in many ways a difficult process. This is, this is true in countries throughout the world. Um, there are people who are tortured every day. And it is not something that the world has yet committed to. And since I'm in the Divinity School, I get to say this. Oh, I could say it in other places too. But you know, every Good Friday, sometimes I go to church, and I sit in church, and I feel sad. But I feel sad for two reasons. On the one hand, I am looking at Jesus Christ who was crucified and tortured. But I'm also sad because I realize, and I, I sometimes think that Jesus Christ would come down and have this conversation. And he would say, you know what? You could cry for me, but you know what? Today, in countries throughout the world, people are being tortured. And maybe you couldn't do something then, but you could do something now. And I really believe that. I believe that. I believe that in the same way that we have looked at different movements, that we can end torture as an investigative tool. We can decide that this is a priority that we have, and there are definitely movements and steps for seeing that it's all possible. But it's not just possible if we look at it from only a pragmatic and legal point of view. It's all of the different elements that make it possible. I remember when we first started training police officers in Cambodia, they started transforming. And everyone said, oh, they're transforming because you're telling them what the laws are. But nobody transforms because you sit there and you go, hey, this is what the laws are. People began to transform because we sat down and we said, hey, why did you become police officers? And most of them said, we became police officers because we wanted to move forward from the Khmer Rouge. We didn't want to see people tortured anymore. All, so many people in our family died. And I would say that many people would say, you can't trust these police officers. They're terrible. They're torturing people. You know, it's, it's, it's not true. But you know, in many ways, we're looking at whatever part of good they find in themselves and looking at how we can affirm it so that it can grow. And over and over again, we saw with police officers that when we worked with them in values clarification, they began to say, OK, if that's true, and I want something that's different, what do I need to do to transform? We've seen this process everywhere, that it is on the one hand um, about laws, about training, about implementation. And it's on the other hand about something greater that, that is all the stuff that you learn in divinity school. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm very serious about that because I feel that there is a way in which in order for us to work on this movement together, it requires all of us and every part of what we can bring to it.
Not very long ago, we had a training um, for Burmese and Myanmar attorney generals, Supreme Court justices, military police, and activist lawyers. And I remember that from the very first day, they, we brought them out and they were doing a training in Singapore and we were trying to look at what kind of legal aid system we could now, now that there, now that, that there was a new government, we could build together. And there was clear tension everywhere, all the time, every day. And it was the first day, it was the second day, and then it, we came to this other day and everyone was divided because actually what happened is that there was a military police there, but there are also lawyers, activist lawyers who had been tortured. So, you know, it's kind of a tense situation. I remember that we sat down, and of course, nobody wanted to sit next to the military police. So I sat with the military police, and the, the lawyers, activist lawyers, were sitting at a different table. And as I was talking to the police officer, I said, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, during that period of law and all, it must have been really terrible, because he was a, a military police. He had to conduct all the torture. So he said, it must have been really terrible. I mean, you know, dinner conversation. And he sort of stopped and he paused and he looked at me and he said, you know, there was a lot of torture then, but there's a lot of torture today as well. Which we know, right? In, in, in many, many countries, even though governments change, if there is a system in place where people are always tortured as the cheapest form of investigation, it doesn't necessarily just change overnight. It may continue still at a very, very basic level in country after country after country. So he says to me, well, there was a lot of torture then, there's a lot of torture today. The torture today, of course, is not just necessarily political prisoners. It's people who are too, too poor to afford a lawyer. So they're tortured as an investigative tool. And then he said, and you know, and he looked over at the other table and said, and it's very difficult because if we really want to transform, we must, and he made this motion, he said, we must release, release, release. And at that moment, I understood that there was something else that needed to happen in our interactions with others. It wasn't just about going back the next day and doing legal training. And so I asked them the next morning, should we go to, there was, a, there was a Burmese Buddhist temple there in Singapore. I said, should we go to this temple? And they said, yeah, let's go. And what was interesting to me is that it was almost immediate that things were transformed. They came together and, and the monk blessed them and prayed with them and gave them each, you know, had their blessings with the ties. And afterwards, the entire energy transformed in their relationships. And then the real work began. Then from the point of being able to see beyond what had happened in the past, and I think for many of them, even the forgiveness allowed them to say, how do we now create a new story together that is transformative? So I bring this up is to say, we realize that it is in some ways, technical legal training. It is, in some ways, consultants coming together. And in many ways, because I'm here at the Divinity School, I'm also saying that we need all of us to work on this if it is to work. We need it, and we're committed to it with you. I have a sense that, in many ways, when you look, and when we've looked at the chapters of our life, you know there's chapters in your life, we always talk about this, Forest Church once said, there's chapter three, and then there's chapter five. And when you're in chapter five, you're like, well, I'm in chapter five. That has nothing to do with chapter three. It's only when you get to chapter seven that you go, oh, that's why we're in chapter seven. So our, 
our organization has also gone through a number of chapters. And I sometimes think that you go on to the next chapter when you've learned the lesson that you need to learn and, and things make sense. So for our organization, we were in chapter three. Um, we started in Cambodia. We moved also, oh no, actually I'm wrong. We started in China. We started then receiving requests from virtually every country in the world. We had people from India who said, we have the same thing. We have, um, you know, four people die every day in police custody. We have laws on the books. They're not implemented. Can you help us? Because there aren't organizations that work with us in this area. Um, so we had issues everywhere, in Burma, Congo, everywhere. Lawyers and people came together to say, how can we work together? We started working on um, a justice makers program where we have justice makers today in 38 countries throughout the world who have the exact same issue. So we were working this issue, going step by step, and actually kind of acting like, like I wouldn't say we were, because we weren't, we were always been a little bit, you know, interesting in our own way, but almost like a normal organization. You know, you get a budget, you see that here, there's this amount of money, you can take 15 cases, you can do this, you can do that. And then um, something, I guess, in retrospect, we could say something fantastic happened, and that is that we lost a lot of money. We hit we went through a massive funding crisis. And um, I think for many people, it looked like a bad thing. And in fact, when I was in the middle of it, I also thought it was not a very nice thing. <laughs> we would wake up every morning and be like, okay, let me put my hand on my heart. It's gonna be fine today. But what happened in that process is that because we didn't have what we used to have, we started looking at things differently. Now, one of them is Sister Rose. Many, some of you from the Denise School have heard about Sister Rose because Sister Rose was my original inspiration when I began International Bridges of Justice also. So Sister Rose was a nun at the Missionaries of Charity, which is an orphanage in, um, in Cambodia. And even though we were from completely different worlds, whenever I really needed something and really couldn't, was stuck, I would go to Sister Rose. And she always had perfect advice. So I remember at one point, um, I was going for a very difficult time with the prisons, with, um, I was being threatened by some of the police, and it was a very difficult time. And I remember I went to Sister Rose, and I said, Sister Rose, what should I do? And Sister Rose stopped, and she thought for a long time, and then she looked at me, and she said, hmm, what you must do is you must look for the Christ or the Buddha in every person, in every police officer, in every prosecutor, in every prison guard, because she really believed in the power of transformative love. And as I worked with what she believed, I began to believe in the power of transformative love too, because the guards transformed. They ended up taking out the, the, guard, the dark cells and, and had many, many transformative measures. So one of the basic tenets of International Bridges of Justice is that we, although we have to move politically and work top down, bottom up, that we are not a political organization. We will work with anybody who will work with us to end torture as an investigative tool, and that may be police officers, government, wh whoever it is. So 
during this time where we suddenly hit this huge um, financial crisis, I guess it could be called a financial crisis, I happened to go back to Cambodia. And Sister Rose and I hadn't seen each other for a very long time. I had left, she had left. She happened to go back to India and I heard that I came back and someone said, you know, Sister Rose is back, not here, but there. And I went to see Sister Rose. And when I went to see Sister Rose, um, she's like, oh, very good to see you, this and this and this. And now I do believe that Sister Rose, because she's Sister Rose, has a beeline to the divine, right? She just has it. <laughs> so I say to Sister Rose, Sister Rose, um, she's like, yes, what do you need? And I said, oh, could you pray for, I need some resources. You know, we're going through a difficult time with resources. And so Sister Rose sat there and said, hmm, okay, okay. So she closes her eyes and begins to pray, which makes me very happy that Sister Rose is praying for my resources to just flow down. And all of a sudden, she opens her eyes and she says, oh, uh, he has told me that you have resources. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 you know, no, I don't have resources. I don't have resources. Try again. <laughs> you know, ask again. Try again. And she goes, hmm. okay. So she closes her eyes. I said, and I really need you to ask for resources. So yeah, ask for resources. So she closes her eyes and she starts to pray again. And she goes, hmm. She goes, no, 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 you have resources. And she opens her eyes and I said, how? I don't have resources. Like, look, look here, I'm gonna show you our bank account. Here, these are the programs that have been closed. And she said, you have, he told me, he has told me, you have people. And if you have people, you have resources. So I was like, okay, great. Could you pray anyway? But here's the great thing about it is that I went back, and as I began to open my eyes, I realized that Sister Rose was right. There was person after person after person that we contacted, and we said, listen, you're doing amazing work. I still always talk about Aline, because Aline was in Burundi. And I said, you know, this has been going on for a year. We've been trying to, you know, have some bake sales, trying to keep this open. I know that you are the only ones who are taking care of these people who are being tortured, but you have to find another job. You have to do something. And she took my hand and she looked at me and said, you know, um, I don't think you realize this, Karen, but our commitment with International Bridges of Justice is bigger than the budget. So we are going to keep on, keep on, keep on. And it's a good thing she did, because as you know, when all, everything hit the fan in Burundi, there were over 100 youth who were picked up and tortured, and mothers were calling us saying, you know, can you defend my son? I think he's gonna be killed. And, and only Aline and that group were there to defend and protect. But it wasn't just Aline, it was in India. We had, I remember that Virjani wrote to me and said, I said, hey, uh, bad news. And she wrote back and said, good news. <laughs> I'm like, bad news, she's like, I have learned with International Bridges of Justice to never lose the faith. So I am also going to keep the faith. So this happened to us over and over again. And we became really a different kind of organization. We began to understand that while we had, we thought we had limited resources, that it was sort of like, you know, it was like the loaves and the fishes. They just kept on going. And we started to see that while we, and at the same time, this is what was ironic, at the same time that the money seemed to be going down, the requests were going up and going up 
and, and, and more and more countries are contacting us, lawyers. Um, we had ACP, which is African, Caribbean, Pacific, that's 78 countries, um, contact us saying, we want to work with you. We want to strategize. We want to figure this out. So we began to develop a much more of a kind of a, a Uber system where we would find volunteers, law firms, law schools, everybody who would work with us. We had youth that contacted us, and youth started saying, you know, we'll, we'll do campaigns with you. We had faith leaders who said, we will work with you in many, many different ways. So in so many ways, what we thought was a crisis turned out to be really in some ways a revolution in terms of the way that we saw things and the ways that we were able to, to move it forward. Um, I'm going to stop in 25 seconds to see if there's, there's a discussion that we can have on it. But before I do that, I want to sincerely ask for your help. And I'm asking for your help because I do believe, and I'm not lying about this. People think that I'm joking. My kids are like, when you say that, are you actually just kidding? <laughs> I really do believe that it is possible for us to end torture as an investigative tool in our life. I believe that the time is now, that all of the elements are there, and that if we commit ourselves to it, we can do it. I also know that we can't do it if we don't commit ourselves to it. And I always talk about Vishnu because he was our four-year-old boy. He's a four-year-old boy in prison. He was born in this Cambodian refugee camp, not refugee camp, prison. Um, but because he was born in the prison, he could always figure out a way, because the guards would let him in and out, right? So he would climb up the first, second, third bar, and he would really slowly turn his head and then go down third, second, first. And he would grab my pinky because he wanted me to lift him up and either put his hand through to the prisoners on top, or he had dug out little dirt areas and he would put his finger through. And most of those prisoners said, he is my only sunshine. I wait for him. I wait for him every day. And even though he couldn't do it all the time, he knew that he could do something and do as much as he can. I always had this great admiration for this little boy who's born in a prison and can't do much, but really could do one thing and did his one thing. So today, as we were looking at building the end of investigative torture, there are different parts and pieces that we can all work on together. We're building a justice tech hub right now to see how we can put it together and we can all be a part of the whole. So whatever it is, I ask that if you are here today or if you're listening, that you consider what your piece in the whole is. Because um, I think we can do it. It might be naive, but hey, gotta be naive. So I would like to open it up, if that's okay, right now. Thank you. Or I could keep talking. <laughs> yes. Um, thank you, Karen. This was so inspiring. I so thank you. That was so inspiring. And my question is very basic. Yes. I'd like to understand why uh, investigative torture is the cheapest method. Hmm. Thank you so much for asking that question. Can I just say something? Um, I guess I can. 
I have the mic, I have the floor. <laughs> Nobody has ever asked me that question. And it occurs to me when you ask it that possibly someone in the last 16 years has had that question. <laughs> um, it's, it's the cheapest form of investigation because when people, when the police officers want a confession or, and they can't, they don't investigate. They don't, you know, bring in witnesses. You don't have a lawyer. You don't have anything. You basically just torture someone and then you have a confession. So it's cheap. I mean, it's not effective. You, you, there, you know, there's a new movie that's out that I haven't been able to watch, but it's about, it's about these four guys in India. And um, one guy, he's Tamil, he's walking home from a movie, and the police pick him up, and then they pick up the four, and they spend the whole time saying, Water. they said, just confess, and we'll stop torturing you. And they keep saying, why should we, you know, why should we, why should we, why should we? Anyway, it goes through the whole thing. But, but I see this in real life, like this is a movie, but I had, um, I still remember that in India, we, I met two of our cases, and it was, very, it was a very interesting dynamic because I remember the lawyer said to me, oh, oh Karen, you're going to be so happy you know, we're gonna, when we show you this great stuff that, that's happened. And I met two, two people. One was Afsana, and she was um, the daughter of a rickshaw driver, and she was accused of stealing something, so they beat her till she was bloody anyway. We got her out of prison. It was a good thing. The second one was this guy, and um, well, first of all, I really liked him because I'm five feet tall, and he was also five feet tall, right? Very cute. Um, his wife was five feet tall, and his dad was five feet tall, <laughs> and he had he was holding on to this baby, and this it wasn't a baby; it was a four-year-old. That the kid was clinging on to him, and I made a joke of it, and I said. I said to the mom, that is a very clingy son. <laughs> he must really love his dad. And the wife said, you know, when the police came to take him away, he clung to his dad. And he, he, they peeled up his fingers, they threw him down, and he said, please don't take my dad to torture him. And the dad at that point looked at me, and I felt so stupid that he, that I felt so stupid. And I said, please don't apologize. And he said, I... We looked at the cases against him, and he said, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry that I confessed to so many cases, but I confessed to save my life. And, and basically, he was accused of stealing $5 worth of barbed wire, and he said they were inserting acid up him in order to get him to confess, but they didn't just get him to confess to one case. It was, and this case, and this case, and this case, and this case. So he had like hundreds of cases against him for all the times that he allegedly stole barbed wire. So it's, it's a very, com unfortunately, it's a very common way of extracting a confession out of someone. It's not effective in any way, but it's cheap and it's where there's a breakdown of a legal system or, or no legal system that, that exists. But I think one of the positive things is that um, governments throughout the world today are interested in partnering to work in this area and, and one reason is because they realize that it leads to a very unstable country when people are tortured every day and they don't want people revolting. So they're, they're looking for some stability and are, are really starting to say, how can we work together in this? I, I'm so, I can't believe it. Someone else has had to have had that question in the last 16 years. <laughs>
Thank you. Is there another question? My question is, again, with um, regard to Eleanor Roosevelt. She said, do one thing a day that scares you. Wow. What is the scariest thing that you've ever done? Hmm. What's the scariest thing that I've ever done? You know, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know what the scariest thing is that I've ever done, because I know that you will not believe this, but I am the biggest chicken in the entire world, like in general. Like I, <laughs> so I mean, I I am one of these people who, you know, people laugh at me, but I don't even like going to hotel rooms. <laughs> I have to I have to I have to travel all the time, and they they can even be nice hotel rooms, and I'm like, you know, is someone there? <laughs> is someone under my bed? So I don't know. It's hard to say. Because in some strange way, I'm such a big chicken about everything um, that I don't know what the hardest thing is. But I think that one of the harder things, one of the, I don't know, one of the harder things for me is sometimes I'm afraid that I'm going to lose hope. And then that's going to be a big problem, that, that I'm going to just say, hey, can't do this, or we can't do this, and and um, that that kind of that kind of scares me a little bit. I know that was a bad answer, but tonight when I go to sleep, I'm going to think of a perfect answer. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to be a little bit I'm going to be a little bit confrontational here, um, out of my own experience. And I'm going to say something to, for effect, not, not because it's, it's true. But m my sense is that what you're doing mm -hmm. around torture in these various countries is not permanent. Do you know what I mean by that? That it's, it's circumstantial. Mm -hmm. um, and it has a lot to do with you, probably, as a person and some other people. And I wonder if, if you've given some thought to how, how it becomes permanent. Because if you look, you yes. know some, yes, something yes, about yes. the history of Cambodia yes. and what a, what a Garden of Eden it was in the 50s before yeah. people like Absolutely. the Americans got there. So I'll leave it there and let you answer. No, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, actually. Thank you so much. Um, because what you just mentioned is that is my greatest fear. That is my greatest fear. And that, I think, is one of the biggest problems that we have, that as a global community, we do little tiny things, and, and, and they last for a little while. We take some cases, we work on this part of it. The way that, um, the way that we envision it for the future is that what we want is we want to build early access to counsel for every man, woman, and child throughout the world. And we want to make sure that it's systematic so that its systems change. It's not, it's not five cases or one community or five communities, but it's something overall that supports itself. So within countries, for instance, our overall goal is that the countries end up taking it over. That's why we, we sign memorandums of understanding with the governments so, and work with them so that it becomes part of the system. That's one thing. Um, and at the same time, we're looking at how 
countries can work together, so they're working individually, but also work together, and we're looking at how we build coalitions and communities so that they can support each other as they move forward in this ideal. But yes, I, I absolutely feel that. I mean, for me, I don't want to say it wouldn't be worth doing, but it wouldn't be worth doing. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's like, I don't want to take five cases or 10 cases or 20, because somebody else can do that. What we want to do is we want to make sure that this is something that's systematic early access to counsel, so that it's not these five cases or these 10 cases, but that it's generational that we put together the systems and a shift in consciousness so that it's not just once in a while, but it's really a generational shift. Thank you. You said you're not an administrator, but this sounds like an enormous administrative <laughs> undertaking. What kind of organization do you have? You're in so many countries, yeah. and there must be a lot of people doing this, and how is this structured? Okay, so the good thing is that I'm not an administrator, and um, I think in some, people tell me all the time that my incompetence is one of the greatest gifts to the organization. <laughs> and I think in some ways it is, because from the very beginning, I realized that, I mean, so if you're pretty good at something, you want to do it yourself. And if you're really not good at it, you really want to find other people who can work with you and partner with you. So um, it is, I've, so I've, I basically have always had the motto that I should look for people who are better than me at the things that they're better than me in, and that we could be able to complement each other in that way. So in terms of the organizational structure, we have um, a head office in Geneva we have 501c3 status in the United States um, for tax deduction purposes and people who are working here. We have um, offices in Cambodia, offices in China, and they're registered. Also, Cambodian is Cambodian Bridges of Justice, um, Rwanda Bridges of Justice, we've met India Bridges of Justice, and they are, um, while there's a, a sort of a set of structures that support um, a methodology that supports the underlying vision of what we hope to accomplish. Each country is individualized. So for instance, in China, there was already 2,000 legal aid centers when we started. But the problem with them is that they were just shells. So even though they, they were physically existing, the lawyers didn't have the training and weren't sure how to implement some of the laws. So we would create, no, we would create manuals and give them to the government, and the government would distribute them to the 2,000. Or we would work, we worked with the Youth Communist League. We actually worked with 3,000 members of the Youth Communist League, and they were all law students, 14 law, stu 14 law schools, and they went to the police stations and worked with the police. So it's, it's different in each country. Um, in Burundi, they didn't have 2,000, they didn't have a single legal aid center, so we started our own with one administrator, one um, lawyer, and one investigator. So it's, it's different, I don't know what they say in Asia, you know, same, same, but different. Mm -hmm. So you have somebody. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Mm -hmm. We would be in a lot of trouble if it were me, I agree. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm just curious about what's ahead. Are there more countries that you want to go into? I mean, mm. it seems like your, your work is far from over, but um, what's, what's ahead for, for your organization? Um, 
what's ahead? I'm really happy that you mentioned this. I probably shouldn't say this on tape, but I had a, I had a fantastic board meeting just on Friday, and I started talking about the Justice Tech Hub, and everyone fell asleep, and I was really sad, but none of you are gonna fall asleep. <laughs> I have a board member here. Okay, Grace did not fall asleep. I hope you will not fall asleep on this. So one of the best things that happened um, during this whole crisis is that we started looking at how do we, how, you know, how do we do this? You know, what are the volunteer resources? How do we, how do we put it together? So, and, and we started doing, how can I say this? We started doing less and less things. We, we, we didn't have the resources to. So in as many, so everywhere we were, we were like, hi, can you help? Hi, can you help? So, you know, governments started putting their human rights councils and saying, okay, we can support these cases. You know, everyone started having different bits. So today we have like 82 law schools, you know, 363 NGOs, and we have a massive network that grew out of our financial disaster, you know, which is great. And, and so in terms of what's next for International Bridges of Justice is that in 2012, because I'm Chinese, you know Chinese people have 12-year plans, 12 animals and 12-year plans. So in 2012 um, was Year of the Dragon, and Phoenix, right? Phoenix rises from the ashes of destruction. So I thought, oh, this is a perfect time for us to launch our 12-year plan. So we put together a 12-year plan for the end of torture as an investigative tool, and it said, okay, these, this is what is necessary. Um, you need you know, indexes, you need soft governance for the governments coming together, you need, you need to institutionalize defender standards worldwide, so every single lawyer has to know exactly what they have to do. So we put together this 12-year plan, and um, I think it was, I think it was $238 million, which I was told afterwards, you should never put out a plan, Karen, that costs $238 million. What are you thinking? You know, you're gonna scare everybody. So I thought, oh, really? Because I thought $238 million to end torture as an investigative tool is pretty cheap, right? Oh, thank you. So, so, so we put together this plan, and actually what happened after we put together the plan is that we didn't raise $238 million. In fact, just the opposite happened. We crashed financially. So we've uncrashed. So something happened, which is fantastic, some fantastic people understood that we could replicate this program in Francophone Africa. So we're replicating it in 10 African countries. But we've transformed the way that we have seen things. We understand, actually, that it is possible to end torture as an investigative tool, but not by us raising $238 million. It can happen by placing the structure together where everyone can see what their, what their part of the whole is. So there's like a plan with it. And at the same time, we're, we're Uberizing it. So we have these 78 countries, but we have 78 other bodies who can say, okay, we have centralized information that we've collected through the last you know, 16 years. So we can give this to like law firm A or B and say, it's Article 31 in one country, and it's Article 55 in another one, but here's a country, here's the centralized information, can you work with it? So this is the way that we see one part of what we need to do is we need to institutionalize defender standards worldwide. 
So that's, that's one part that's taken care of. The other part is campaigns, right? And we've had a number of youth and interfaith leaders who have said, we'll take on some of the campaign pieces. Um, so the whole thing in terms of what's next is, um, huh, the, I get to make a little pitch here. <laughs> we, we, are, we, are looking to, we are looking to open our justice hub technologically. And we have um, partnered with a, a new group, Sphera, that is putting together on technology all of the different collaboration pieces as well as the, um, you know, some of the building blocks for it. And while we absolutely will be intensely working on the ground in the countries and still working in terms of soft governance region by region, we're also looking at this tool as something that can help us move it forward. Hi, um, that was a, a fantastic talk you gave. Um, I've come from a part of the world um, where I grew up as a sort of a young man in a community where internment and uh, was was used, um, um, where supergrass trials took place. It was in Northern Ireland. Uh, was, I lived in the border, just there, um, and I'm familiar with what the a police state does and how justice is circumvented, to say the least. Um, and I am also aware of what the American presence did um, under the Clinton administration and Bill Clinton's focus on Ireland. Um, a lot of things changed. Um, however, I've, I'm now wondering how the, the climate recently has changed your efforts on a global stage when I look at now the American presence, which is not so benign as it used to be in the past when it's associated with things such as Abu Ghraib, um, flights of rendition, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, how do you find that presence now coming from where you come, where you live, where, yeah. this, um, where your voice comes from? Um, how do you find that complicates your, your work abroad? Thank you. You know, in some very strange, ironic way, all of the terrible things that were happening with the American government and Abu Ghraib actually helped our work. Um, from the perspective that I could go into countries and they'd say, you know, America's doing this, 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 and this. And in a way that was good because we're not, we've never said America's great. I mean, I shouldn't say that either, but we, we're, we're, not, we're not saying, we're not saying use America as a model. We're, our model is we want, we look at countries and say, in every country, and you know, these 93 countries have all passed laws that say you have a right to lawyer, right not to a defender, not to be tortured. So what we want to do is we want to take the best of the laws within each country and say, how can we implement these? So, so while on the one, I mean, it's kind of a strange twist in logic, but while it seems that it would be difficult, in fact, in many countries, um, the fact that they also saw me sometimes as being American. They'd say, well, this is, this is a problem. I said, yeah, this is a problem. So it's not about one country being fantastic and another country not being fantastic. It's about all of us you know, being able to work to, to make it the best. Karen, thanks so much uh, for being here and, uh, and for the work that you do and also for being always such a proud ambassador for Harvard Divinity School, which I know that you are. 
And we have so many students here at HDS who, like yourself, have a real special passion or calling around a cause or an issue, and I just think would want to be like you and see it through. And what advice as an alum would you give to those students about how to sustain that um, as they are here and then as they go forth and try to really make it happen in, in the world? Mm. Um, I, so I used to have, especially when I first began, I used to read this quote all the time. I don't know who wrote it, but somebody says, it's not the destination, it's the journey. <laughs> and who you become in the process of that journey. And, you know, it's funny because sometimes I quote that and I think, I say that and I think to myself in the back of my head, but it is the destination. <laughs> so I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fine balance between being able to see things from a broader perspective and realize it's not, you know in these Chinese paintings, right? You have, you have these huge paintings and you have one little tiny person there and that's the, that's the person, right? And so it's also understanding that while you're concentrating on your local story and it doesn't look great, actually there might be other parts of the story that are happening that you're a part of. And, and I, I think it's just, it's sort of, you know, for me, What's been beautiful is that the defenders are so, I mean, they just will kick my butt, right? They'll be like, we gotta keep on, keep on, keep on, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, so for people who don't have the defenders, I would say that it's really important to also um, both surround yourself with people who will also say, let's keep on together. And, um, and then if you don't have that, I just ha was having this con conversation with my son the other day. He, I have a, 10-year-old son, and he was saying, you know, um, well, I won't speak badly about anyone like teachers, but <laughs> he said something at one point where he said, you know, someone said something, something to me, and, I, and, I, and that was mean, and I said, okay, that's great. You know what? Next time they do that, you look them in the eye, and inside you go, cancel, cancel. So I think partly it's that, that, you know, just surround yourself with great people, and when people are mean, you go, cancel, cancel. Do you want your coffee back? <laughs> <laughs> I stole his coffee. <laughs> I'm interested in, in uh, help me understand a little bit more about how this works uh, at the granular level. You're going into, okay. into these countries yes. where um, mm -hmm. getting started, you're trying to get a foothold. Uh, and so maybe at one level, there's a, yes. an issue with the rule of law, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're trying to get appropriate legislation passed. And, and, and implemented, and so you've got these defenders who've been trained in, in, in a building yep. police station or whatever. How do they become effective? I mean, they, so they, they go in and now they know that we've got these new laws that the country has passed. How does that help them when they're walking in there and they're, they've heard through the community that there's three kids yep. who are maybe a problem kids, as you suggest, yep. but they still you know, deserve due process. What makes them effective with those police captains to turn them, to start giving them, to stop, you know, uh, or to, for, for them to cease torture, using torture? Great, thank you. And how do you get to that okay. inflection point in a, in a community or in a, in a, in a state? 
and that's exactly, it's an inflection point, right? So there's a buildup and there's all these other things that happen to happen at the same time for it to come together. So first of all, we do not go into countries where there's not already a law on the books that say you have a right to a lawyer, you have a right not to be a defender. Luckily for us, there are very few of those countries because most countries already have the laws. So we only go into countries where the laws are there. That's the first thing. The second thing is that, um, you know, it's amazing, but one of the reasons why we started our Justice Maker program, and I'm going to answer your question, is because when defenders and people in different communities heard what we were doing, they started contacting us from everywhere in the world. They were super excited because they said, oh my gosh, there's an organization that works in this area. It's very specific, right? Works to support lawyers so that they are, the, as their first point of contact, there's protection. And there's very, very few that do that. So they're very excited about that. And so this is why we started our Justice Maker program, because we didn't want to tell them we're this tiny little organization in the middle of, you know, we sound very big, International Bridges of Justice or whatnot. But usually what we do is we go in and we have to assess whether there's laws or not. We're usually invited in, so there's somebody somewhere who goes, there's a problem, I'm going to, in a way, I'm going to be your Sherpa. I'm going to show you what to do. And we have had great people who are the most innovative, creative people. I mean, I had one meeting where this guy was like, come in, come in, come in, come in, you know, come in, I'm making you a meeting now with the Minister of Justice, whatever. And I hear him on the phone, yes, 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 uh-huh. Yes, seven of us are coming right now. And I looked, and I'm like, okay, there's two of us. <laughs> and he goes, it's okay. We'll tell them when we get there, there's only two. So, so we usually have someone, and this is like our justice maker, somebody who has already identified you know, what, what the trigger points are, you know, where we could go. And we start very slowly. We, all, we, we negotiate on both levels with the Minister of Justice. So when we were in the DRC, we went first to Bukavo and negotiated with the Minister of Justice in Bukavo in one area. And then after we received permission, we went to the Minister of Justice, you know, in, in the capital to say, can you give us overall protection and, and permission to do this? So it's... It's, it's, um, there are a number of different elements that need to happen. The first is that you have to do advisement and rights campaigns because people might not know that they have a right not to be tortured, right? So we do advisement and rights campaigns. But the second thing is, even if you know you have a right to not to be tortured, if there's no lawyer there, it doesn't really help. So this, this happened to us in Burundi where we first only had funding to do advisement and rights. So we did advisement and rights campaigns. And then people called us and said, we are taking down your posters. They <laughs> said, why? They said, we're taking down our posters because there's nowhere for them to go. It doesn't matter if they have a right, if, if there's nothing there. So they took down the posters until we actually opened an office. So we'll do advisement of rights campaigns so that people know what the laws are. Then we'll do a training of the lawyers, which is, is very, there's checklists to everything. It's not, it's, the, it's not rocket scientists, but we've pulled out the most relevant laws for them to use along with you know, how they will stand up and defend after that, we work and do roundtable discussions with the judges, the prosecutors, and the police, and also negotiate on that level so that when they actually come in, they can do something. So for instance, in China, we had this fantastic training. I was super proud. I was like, yes, everyone is like, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. It's great. I go back six months later, and it's like, well, so tell me, how have you implemented the training? And um, they go, well, you know, should we tell her? And they said, you know what? We haven't implemented it because we can't because the judges and prosecutors won't let us, and this and this and that. So from that, what we realized is that we couldn't just jump in and do a training. We actually had to establish a defender resource center that was supported 
so that they could you know, take cases on a daily basis and they could also have support from us in terms of negotiation with the judges, prosecutors, and the police. So then, so then we, we negotiate so they, they have some protection going in. And then it's just, I don't know, the long road to justice. You know, it's, it's, but it starts with that. Um, what's, what's very interesting for us is, number one, this is Wayne Arneson, right, who says, take courage, friends. The road is often long, the path is never clear and the stakes are very high. But deep down, there is another truth. You are not alone. And for defenders, when they come together, and they're, they're coming together under a common purpose and mission, which is what we do when we organize them together, it's not just training, it's also about visioning exercises and how do we support each other, you know, how do we keep each other safe, what do we do, um, they begin to transform. We've seen that actually when 100 lawyers come together, there's something that happens too, because even if they're going back to their own provinces, they feel a different kind of strength. But here's the other strange thing which has to do with our justice tech hub. We've realized that lawyers become stronger, not just in country, but because they're speaking across the world. So even though Burundi looks nothing like Cambodia, I've been on Skype calls where at one point I remember the Burundian lawyer's like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. There's only 100 lawyers in the country. This is impossible. You know, and, and Og van Death gets on the phone and goes, hey, when I started, there were only 10. You can do this. You can do this. You know? And it's very interesting because even though culturally you would think that there's a huge culture gap, in fact, there's a commonality in culture across borders in terms of the challenges that they face and the ways that they can strategize together to to, to overcome certain things. These are fantastic questions. Well, thank you. Can oh, we give Karen a round of applause? So, on behalf of Harvard Divinity School, we we want to say thank you, and you're the reason that um, we are celebrating 200 years of Harvard Divinity School and showing um, all of us how much this work matters. I, I want to thank you for um, reminding all of us to bring all of us to this work. And um, one can become weary in well-doing the work that you have done, uh, the tenacity with which you do it, and the faith that you bring to it um, encourages me and I imagine so many of us to hold on to the expectation that what seems impossible really is possible. And so thank you, and um, you really are a girl on fire. I, a girl on fire. <laughs> Thank, thank you. you. Thank, so you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And and I want to say, um, this is a fantastic book. And if any of you would like to look at it afterwards, I'll show it to you. But I also I also want to say thank you for for being with me. And I really believe that we can make the seemingly impossible possible. Thank you for for giving me that encouragement tonight. This was a fantastic audience with the best questions. That was not a mean question. I can tell you there are some mean questions out there. So thank you. Thank you. And good night. Thank you. Thank you.